following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So one of the things that I enjoy about the Bible, one of the things that really excites me about Scripture, and I think I've said this before, is that there's just a depth to it that you can just keep tunneling into um, for all of your life. And our discussion last week of the Sabbath was no exception to the rule, because after we talked about it here in the service, we had Message Plus, there was such good questions and such good comments, and I realized, man, there's a lot of stuff I hadn't thought about it, and I just didn't have time to say last Sunday, and they were really, really insightful things people were offering. And then I had some other side conversations about it this week, and it, I decided we needed to do a part two on this, so this is Sabbath part two, Sabbather. Um, if we do a third one, it'll be Sabbath-est, uh, the return of the Sabbath. So I started reading again this week, and one of the things that struck me was a lot of the way I view the Sabbath is influenced by my Mennonite upbringing. So Mennonites observed the Sabbath in a very particular way. Um, we, you just didn't do anything other than go to church, and you would often hang out at people's homes. And so Sabbath was this day of rest. In fact, for a long time, my parents discouraged me from sports, though that changed over time. Like, I'd want to go play football with my buddies on Sunday afternoon. Um, my generation began to embrace some of those types of things, but my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, Sabbath was, uh, it, w- it was a day of rest and worship. And you went to church in the morning. You often either went to someone's house or they came to your house. All afternoon, you had supper together. Then you all went back to church. That was the rhythm of of Sunday. Um, though Sabbath is in the Jewish tradition is Saturday. It was the rhythm of Sunday. Uh, and I, I've realized as I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks and kind of diving back into what Scripture has to say again that I want to make sure that what I think about the Sabbath is something that is formed by Scripture and not something that is simply formed by something I assumed about how to honor the Lord's Day um, as I go through my week. So it's been an interesting couple of weeks for me as I've been not only just revisiting things, but talking with others and looking at what other godly people have to say about Sabbath. So what I have to offer you this morning is is just kind of um, an opportunity to walk with me in what I'm processing about how to honor this command to honor the Lord's Day. So I'm going to start by reading some passages from the Old Testament. There's actually not many places in the Bible that actually give the Sabbath command. There's a lot of discussion about different ways it's been observed, but the actual commands are pretty simple. I'll give you four short passages just to start us off this morning. The first one is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Holy simply means you set it aside. It's different from the rest of the days. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. So not only do you not do it, you don't make anybody else do something on the Sabbath that would be work. For at six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
little further along, Exodus chapter 31, beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. Uh, Actually, that last part was a little bit of commentary, not part of the verse. Notice in this one, uh, Sabbath keeping is a sign. It's part of covenant keeping. We're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning. From Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a day of sacred assembly. You shall do no work on it wherever you live in all your dwellings. The end of that phrase, you can read different things depending on your translation. The idea seems to be whether you're at home or you're at the temple or wherever you are, observe the Sabbath. And then finally, from Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 5 or verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. That's just comprehensive language, right? Everything, including your animals, gets to rest. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So this is introducing a new thing now. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You were slaves. You couldn't rest. God has delivered you from that. So now as you rest, remember you were freed from slavery. And now you are free to rest. And we'll come back to this a little bit more later as well. So the Old Testament basically says, set this day aside, keep it holy. Like I said, holy simply means it's set apart. When we talk about us being a holy people of God, we're just a set apart people. Uh, We can sometimes make that word almost too mystical. It means you're unique. There's going to be something different about something that is holy. And in this case, we see over and over, this is set aside so that you can rest. Everywhere you are, rest. Make sure that everything around you is allowed to rest. So this is the primary duty of observing the Sabbath in the Old Testament. You don't build, you don't create, you don't harvest, you don't plant. Now, throughout Jewish history, if you're familiar with this, the Jewish community came up with a lot of really picky regulations that Jesus corrects when he shows up. But they wanted to honor this. They wanted to make sure that above all things, they rest. Because on this day, you enjoy the benefit of your labor of the other six days, and you enjoy the benefit of the labor that God has done on your behalf. And then as we see in Deuteronomy, it's tied in with remembering how God freed them from slavery. And often... Times today you'll hear this discussion of what are you a slave to in your life? Are you a slave to your job? Are you a slave to your reputation? Are you a slave to controlling and doing? Okay, you need to rest from that. You are not meant to be people who are in slavery to those kinds of things. And then Leviticus is the one place that says it's a time of sacred assembly. And how the Jewish community typically understood that was assemble together and worship purposefully at that time. 
So there's some things about Sabbath that I find interesting. Number one, of the Ten Commandments, it's the only commandment that's given as a covenant sign. So think back to Noah. The rainbow was this covenant sign that God would keep his word and be faithful to them. After a covenant is made with Abraham, the covenant sign is circumcision, which might seem like an odd thing to us today, but I've got some footnotes you can follow. It was a common way of recognizing people, in this case, men in particular, were set apart. It was once again a way of, in a sense, being holy. You were identified uh, by that particular act. So now you see this reemergence of Sabbath as a covenant and as a sign. So of all the Ten Commandments, it is the only commandment that represents something bigger than itself. Secondly, that's the only commandment that's referred to as a type pointing toward the true form of something else. We read in Hebrews last week about this idea of there being a true Sabbath and a true rest. So the early church fathers for example, said, we no longer do a physical kind of circumcision because now it's a circumcision of the heart. What was once a physical representation of a covenant with God, something is happening inside of our hearts now that that was just kind of a shadow and a type of what was to come. The idea is that Sabbath is the same thing also because you had rest physically before. It's pointing toward a spiritual rest in Christ. Two passages for this briefly. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And then Hebrews, once again, we talked about it last week. There remains a place of rest, a true Sabbath, for the people of God when they enter into salvation's rest. So in the early church, you still had people who practiced circumcision. But whatever circumcision did at that point, it didn't bring salvation and covenant. That was something that happened in our hearts. So the argument would be that whatever Sabbath was doing, it wasn't bringing salvation or covenant by its observation. Something, though, was supposed to happen in our hearts that had something to do with Sabbath rest. But... Uh, I think there's more to it than that. I'm not sure that that's a fair comparison because the command to circumcise in the Old Testament was not part of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments given to the Jewish people, it's the foundational ten laws for which all, all the other laws, everything else in the Old Testament, it's kind of commentary on those. If you ever read the Ten Commandments and then read all the other laws that follow, They all build in some fashion on something that was given in one of the Ten Commandments. And we don't argue that the other nine commandments no longer apply to God's people. I mean, Jesus said there's more to honoring God than simply the physical obedience. So Jesus said, for example, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Right, don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I I want to talk to you about the state of your heart that wants to commit adultery. That's a problem, too. Or you've heard, don't murder people. Jesus said, awesome, don't murder people, but I need to challenge you even more. Don't even be the kind of person who wants to murder people. So so when Jesus showed up and talked about the Ten Commandments, there's not a case where he said, these no longer apply to the people of God. What he did was he said, 
yeah, the physical observation is important, but I'm going to challenge you that it's more than just going through the motions of being obedient. There's something that's happening in our hearts as well. So, so I don't think the Bible frees me to think of the Sabbath observance as only a type. I mean, it's certainly not less than that, for sure. But its placement in Scripture suggests to me that there's something about this observance that has some type of timeless force to it. I, I think one of the reasons we often don't focus on it as part of the Ten Commandments is because we don't quite know what to do with it. Like the other ones are easy. Don't kill people. Got it. Good with that one. Honor your parents. It's a little tougher because what does it mean to honor? But still, we've, we've figured it out. But the Sabbath one, uh, we often, am I right? We often just kind of ignore it or avoid it. And I don't want to do that. I, I feel God's revelation is for us. There's something important about it. I don't want to miss something that God intends for me or for his people because I don't know what to do with the Sabbath. So this, once again, this is me inviting you into my journey of figuring out with more clarity what to do with the Sabbath. So let's look a little bit at how Jesus handled the Sabbath. He pointed out that a lot of the Pharisees' laws were missing the point. The Sabbath is for us. The Sabbath was made for us. We weren't made for the Sabbath. That's a paraphrase of what at least one group of Jewish people were saying at that time as well as they were getting bogged down by these laws. And so when Jesus shows up, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, Sabbath is meant to be a blessing for the people of God. And he said to the Pharisees, you've made it a burden. Sabbath isn't supposed to be a burden. And one of the ways they made it a burden was making it so legalistic about how you observe it. I don't know if you've read much of this, but things like you can't travel off your property. Okay, so then they found ways of getting around that. They'd place items of clothing every so often to where they wanted to travel on a given day because if you had an item of clothing there, that made it your property. Perfect. So they got around. Any law you came up with, there was basically a way to get around it, but it was just this tremendous yoke on the people and Sabbath had become this terrible thing. So now here's Jesus healing on the Sabbath and they're criticizing him and Jesus going, yeah, you've missed the point of the Sabbath. You can heal people on the Sabbath. And then Jesus gets food so his disciples can eat and they're like, oh, you're a Sabbath breaker. And Jesus is, yeah, you missed the point of the Sabbath. So when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't recommand the Sabbath, but he certainly doesn't uncommand the Sabbath, and he observes it. What he does is show the people what it meant to observe the Sabbath rest in a healthy way. They have made it a burden and not a blessing. I think that's an important thing for us to remember, that as we think about what it means to keep this rest, it's supposed to be a time in our life that is a blessing to us. I like the way Wayne Mueller says it. The God who made the Sabbath is not a cranky schoolmaster, always forbidding, coercing obedience, and watching sniveling subjects slinking about in cowardly compliance. The Sabbath commandment comes from a kind, wise teacher who does not like to see us suffer. Let me make it easier for you, God says. Forgetting the Sabbath is like forgetting to unwrap the most beautiful gift under the tree. Many of the Jewish converts in the first century 
kept Sabbath observance, but then also kept the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. As the Gentiles came into the church, they generally began to observe just Sunday as a combination of both these things. For the early Jewish converts, not keeping Sabbath was unthinkable. This was just a part of the rhythm of your life. And they didn't necessarily believe that Jesus had come to start a brand new religion. He had come to refine his people and refine their understanding of God. So an early assumption, at least among some of them, was that Jesus was there to refine what was happening in Judaism. So they expected the, the rhythm of life to continue and to meet in the temple. So like I said, many of them continued to observe Sabbath on Saturday and the Lord's Day on Sunday. Just give you a couple verses, all from the book of Acts, that show how common this was. From Acts chapter 2, the first Christians were all together with one accord in the temple. That was at the time that they received the Holy Spirit. So surely, if they're in the temple and they receive the Holy Spirit, the temple is not going to be a problem in and of itself. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So the temple was part of the rhythm of their life. Sabbath was a time that they spent at the temple. But you also see in the early church, they began to talk a lot now about the first day of the week, which they call the Lord's Day. And here's how they're arguing, or their argument went. On the Sabbath, Jesus was dead. After his crucifixion, he was resting, so to speak, on the Sabbath, which is what the Sabbath is for. On Sunday, now the first day of the week, the Lord's Day is when Jesus comes back from the grave, and now this is the day of new life and of new hope in Christ. So they began to also celebrate and commemorate this particular day. Many of them saw the Lord's Day as a separate day, not necessarily a fulfillment or a completion of the Sabbath, but a new day, one that was added in which we now get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And you see this kind of balance of this tension somewhat throughout the New Testament. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see there was a lot of discussions about how do we balance the Gentile converts coming in, the people who grew up Jewish and had all these other things that were very important to them as part of their observance of their faith. And I'm not going to read the whole book of Acts for you this morning, but you'll see ongoing conversations about how do we make sure we're not creating legalistic hurdles for people that aren't necessary And yet, how do we also create a church culture in which people are honored as they continue to observe the dictates of their conscience about how they believe God has called them to respond? Well, it didn't take long for there to be a major split between what we would now call the Orthodox Jewish community and the church. Before the New Testament is even finished being written, You see a comment on this. John chapter 9 verse 29 describes how the Jews had agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as Messiah, they were to be excluded from the synagogue. So the gospels were basically written after the letters. So later than Hebrews. So by the time they're done filling up the New Testament canon, this split has already occurred to give you an idea of why this had to happen. 
the Jewish people at that time, they met in the synagogue. They recite what they call the 18 benedictions. And they made sure that one of them was such that if Christian converts showed up to the temple and recited this, they would invoke a curse upon themselves. Here's what they would say. So this is a whole group of people in the temple, in the synagogue, reciting this together. For the renegades, let there be no hope. And may the arrogant kingdom soon be rooted out in our days. And the Nazarenes, that would be the followers of Jesus, and the minim, which at least includes Jewish Christians, perish as in a moment and be blotted out from the book of life. And with the righteous, may they not be inscribed. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. So if you were an early Christian convert and you went to the synagogue, you would be invoking a curse upon yourself. And so you see around AD 90 or so, this split happening. And now the temple is no longer a place that can feel like home to the Christian converts. And you see the observation of the Lord's Day rise up. So, so I've got some things I'm holding attention here. In, in my, these are my own personal Anthony scales of balance. Uh, you can decide if you want to join me on these scales or not. On the one hand, I've got that Sabbath in the Old Testament. It's a covenant sign. It's pointing toward true Sabbath, true rest. So, so that's what I'm balancing on the one hand. It, it's meant to be a sign for something greater than itself. On the other side, I'm balancing... The fact that it's one of the Ten Commandments, and the Old Testament treats it very seriously, and the early church continued to observe it for quite a while without people being, certainly not being condemned for observing it. Uh, If anything, there seems to be a richness of this dual celebration of Sabbath rest and Lord's Day worship. So I've got both of these kind of going in my life about... To with what degree of timeless significance do I view the Sabbath? And how much do I view it as simply a type that points toward a spiritual reality? And why not say somehow both of these can be held in tension and there's something about the Sabbath that is more than a type? Not something that brings me salvation, but there's a a richness to it. I was thinking of just in the last year we've been talking about what does it actually mean when we take communion? Is it just a symbol or is there something more? Is there a, is this a means of grace in which God gives us something in those times we take communion that cannot be found elsewhere? Is there something in baptism that's more than just water? Is there some type of grace that is conveyed to us that gives a richness and a depth to our experience with Christ that we can't find elsewhere? Is there something about Sabbath that is some kinds of means of grace? This is what I'm wrestling with in my mind. The bad news is I'm not going to resolve that tension for you this morning because I haven't resolved that tension in myself. Um... I'm going to give you some principles here in a second, and I'd love to come talk with you in Message Plus, but I'm, I find myself at this place in my life where I'm revisiting, man, I can't take this too lightly. I can't take this too lightly. I can't make it a legalistic burden. What does the balance of those two things look like? Okay, so I'm going to leave you on the hook for that along with me. 
And let's just talk about some principles about observing the rhythm of rest in our life that God calls us to. I'm going to build this from Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Jesus says, Come unto me, all that you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus says, first of all, come to me and take my yoke. This is something all the rabbis said. When disciples would come to Jewish rabbis, they would offer them their yoke. And the yoke was, you follow my ways and you follow my teachings. So Jesus says very clearly, if you are labored and heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you a yoke. There will be teachings for you to learn and ways for you to follow, but it will be easy and it will be light. And he says, do this if you want rest. So one thing I take away from this that I think is crucial. If you need rest, don't pursue rest. Pursue Jesus. Pursuing rest without Jesus, I think, will become a trap. Because you might never be rested enough. And it's just frustration over and over and over. I planned this hour for rest, and I didn't get my rest. I planned this day for rest. I didn't get my rest. I planned this vacation for rest, and I came back more exhausted than when I left. I don't think we find rest by pursuing rest. I think we find rest by pursuing Jesus. Which brings me to part two. Learn of Jesus. I believe our rest is connected to trust. And this came up, I think this was Adrian who talked about this last Sunday. So Adrian, I'm going to run with your idea. An image that came to my mind last week was how my cats rest on me. Now, when we first got them as little kittens, they weren't that trusting of us. They hid everywhere. You had to drag them out, claws scraping the carpet, but that's a different story. As they got to know us and to trust us, now they just sprawl on me like I'm furniture, uh, which is kind of cool, I'll be honest. But they they rest in my presence because they trust me. You ever been on a trip with someone where someone else is driving and you don't trust them? Do you rest? <laughs> but if the person driving is trustworthy, you can rest. I even think of how my wife and I have talked over the years, the longer we've been married and the more we know each other, the more we trust each other and the more we rest in each other's presence. And that rest is vulnerability and openness and honesty and all kinds of things like that. We, we rest because we trust and that trust was connected with learning. May I just encourage you, if you can't seem to find rest in Christ, Learn of him. This is reading the Gospels. This is reading and listening to what other Christians are saying about their experience with learning of Jesus. This is reading the rest of the New Testament, all the letters that talk about Jesus. I think primarily it's really pushing into the Bible. Learn of Jesus. If you have trouble resting, you probably have trouble trusting learn of Jesus. And then finally, you'll find rest for your souls. Now, I don't have a formula for this. I'm sure this can mean a lot of things. I'm going to give you just a couple ways in which I think the rest of God plays out in our life and how we can purposefully 
um, order our lives in such a way that we pursue Christ and can experience the rest that he offers. So number one, and I'm pulling some of these from a great list I saw from Timothy Keller. You can find a link to uh, his article if you pick up the notes. Number one, I think we rest by consciously enjoying God and his gifts. So two things, consciously enjoying God. Spending time to very purposefully thank God for who he is, for what he has done in the world, for how he's been faithful in our life. Just spending time in adoration and praise of God. I think we remember the slavery to sin that God has freed us from. And we look back over the course of our lives and remember how God has been faithful and has done things for us. I think we just enjoy God's good world. Conscious that it's God's good world. I think rest is a good date night with my wife and thanking God for my wife and this relationship and for that delicious Chili's food that will be fried if it's date night. I think it's enjoying a sunset and remembering to thank God for that sunset. It's spending time with friends around a campfire and thanking God for friendships and relationships and love and the beauty of a nice hot fire on a cold October night. I think it's going to a museum and looking at a beautiful painting. It's, it can be experienced in so many ways, but I think it's got to be more than just, ooh, that's pretty. It's this purposeful, just thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for your good gifts. You're a good God. I think secondly, it's doing something that frees you from the slavery of being amazing. So we take time off, time off from controlling or for building or for creating or for making a mark on the world or for being noticed or for doing something that we feel on our terms really counts. It really makes us worthwhile. It will remind us that the world turns even when we take time off. That God is not in the heavens wringing his hands if we take a moment to rest. Who will do this? God plans for you to rest. It's not just meant to be part of the rhythm of our life. It's part of God's design for you. He's not surprised if you need this time. The Israelites were required to let their fields rest every seven years. They could not plant. They could harvest, but they could only harvest what came up on its own. Uh, We tried this this last year with our garden. It was a miserable failure, but let's talk about something else. I think the idea is you have to take time in the rhythm of your life to harvest what you have planted to enjoy what you have worked for and to enjoy what God has worked for. Now, when I think of enjoying the things I've worked for, I think of enjoying the things that God has enabled me to work for. So God has blessed me with whatever things that I've been able to use to create, to build, to all these things. So when I enjoy the blessings of my labor, I'm still remembering, thank you, God, for the opportunities, for the talents and gifts, for all these types of things. Thank you, but we enjoy it. And I think in enjoying the blessings God has given us, we enjoy God. So I would say let there be times where you just let stuff come up wildly in your life. You're going to figure out how that looks like. For some of you that might be taking time off, it might manifest in a lot of different ways, but just let the stuff grow for a little bit. Don't worry about planting, just harvest. 
and thank God for it. Number three, plan what I'll call contemplative rest. Praying, singing, reading scripture, listening to God. Something that is very purposeful, a focused resting. Now, can I just add something? I like to fall asleep doing this. I like to lay on my bed and try to make it dark. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just telling you something I've learned to appreciate in the last couple years that I wish I would have appreciated for much longer. I don't mean reading until I'm too tired to read and go to sleep or watching Netflix till I'm too tired to watch and go to sleep. I mean, it's quiet and I just lay down on my bed and I pray. I think about God's blessings in my life. I just, and I have found I, I actually fall asleep pretty quickly and I'm, I rest in ways that I don't, many other ways that I can fall asleep if I'm busy and engaged with something else. Um, when I'm having devotions and I fall asleep, I don't think of it as failure. I think of it as success. Now, I don't mean that every time. I mean, if I'm just too lazy. But I mean, more often than not now, I just, I want to fall asleep focused on Jesus. There's just something really good about that. Number four, do something that refreshes you. Uh, be sure it refreshes we can recreate so much that we're exhausted the day after our day of rest. That might not be a good idea. Also, don't try to copy other people. An extrovert's day of rest involves being surrounded by people and noise. Introverts, does that sound restful to you? Don't try to copy that. Extroverts, don't look at introverts and go, oh, they know how to rest. I should probably try that. You might not rest because that's how you're built. So don't worry about how other people are resting. That's not your job to police them. What does rest look like for you? And then finally, make true Sabbath a part of your daily lifestyle. I'm going to need to wrap up here quickly. What I mean by that is carving out moments in your day. Stoplights are a great place to rest. Not fall asleep. If you're like me, it's so easy for me to pull off my phone and check messages at a stoplight or turn up the radio at a stoplight or you name it. I wonder what would happen if in those equivalent moments in our day, we embrace silence and some type of prayer, some type of thank you, God, for this thing in my life. Um, God, be present in my life in this way. Something that puts us purposefully um, into the presence of God. Not that we're not there already, um, but reminds us that we are. And uh, you have to do the sound effect for it to really work. Okay, final thought. I'm going to finish with a quote about Sabbath from Spurgeon, who wrote and preached a lot about the Sabbath. And I feel like it summarizes a lot of what we've talked about this morning. I am no preacher of the old legal Sabbath. I'm a preacher of the gospel. And I rejoice that believers are not under the law, but under grace. Therefore, I keep this day, which was Sunday for Spurgeon, not as a slavish bondage, not as a day in which I am chained and hampered with restraints against my will, but as a day in which I may take holy pleasure in serving God and in adoring before his throne. The Lord's day of the Christian is a joy, a day of rest, of peace and thanksgiving. This day is cares, balm and cure. It's the couch of time the haven of divine calms. Come, my soul, 
Throw yourself upon this couch. Rest and take your ease. For you have come unto Jesus to a finished sacrifice, to a completed righteousness, and your soul may be satisfied in the Lord, and your spirit may rejoice in the Lord your God. This is to keep the Sabbath. In vain do you keep the day unless your heart keeps it too. Oh, may your hearts know how to find in Christ a perfect rest. May God give you divine grace to know your sin and enable you to fly to the Savior and find in him all your soul needs. May he enable you to rest in Christ today, and then you shall keep Sabbath on earth till you keep the eternal Sabbath before the throne. Trust him, and so shall you be saved, and your spirit shall be at ease. God, I'm grateful that you are Lord of the Sabbath, that you are the God of rest. I'm grateful that we who are weary laden can come to you and take your yoke upon us and find rest in your righteousness and your salvation and your ways. Lord, may we be a people of rest. I don't mean a people of laziness. I mean a people who know how to rest. And may our rest uh, reveal you ever more clearly, your heart for us, um, your nature. I mean, what kind of awesome God plans for his people to rest? May our rest be a witness of the goodness of the God we serve. And may this rest help to create a community in which we rest not only in your presence, but in the presence of your people. And may this all be done for our good and for your glory. I pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.